and thank you for checking out the 91st version of what we call Scoring at the Movies. We go back a bit to take another look at sports films and we spoil them from their nose to their toes. I'm the youngest resident of an old folks home who doesn't look all that good in just his underwear and is not going to invite Jake the Snake Roberts to his birthday party, Ryan Ellis. And here's the raft operator whose number one rule was don't slow me down before his heart was quickly won over by his newfound pseudo brother, Macho Man Christy Gregorio. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Full disclosure before we get recording today, I may have entered into a blood feud with a roving gang of crab fishermen over by Lake Ontario on the way over here. Something to do with me torching their rig or something, I don't know. But I would normally handcuff you to the microphone before we record, that's just what we do, of Mm -hmm. course, but I need you to keep an eye out for somebody just wandering by with a tire iron for me because I've got a bad feeling that they might be out for some revenge, so... Just want to put that out there before we get going. Somehow Tyler survived getting a tire iron to the back of the head. He is bandaged up at the end, but that seems like a bit of a fantasy that he lived through that. We'll skip right to the end, right away. This movie is a pretty down-to-earth, heartwarming tale for 99% of it. And then it turns into like a fantasy thing at the end, starting with Zach just launching a 300 pound man (laughs) and i don't mean the picking him up and just tossing him out of the ring i mean catapulting him so one thing they don't really talk about is that zach definitely just killed sam he just killed jake the snake there's no way a 60 year old man of that size could survive that kind of throw but in the hospital after tyler got clanked but the tire iron you see eleanor speaking to a doctor in the background Mm -hmm. and she's weeping after they're talking so my assumption there was oh well tyler just died or is in bad shape which i think is what the movie wants you to think Mm -hmm. And then you see Zach lift his birthday cupcake up and he's about to blow out the candles. And then I think it cuts to the car driving to Florida. So my thought is, did he just use his birthday wish to wish that Tyler pulls through? Or is this him going to some sort of fantasy where he's not trying to think about what just happened to Tyler? Tyler really died. We're now in Zach's head where he's fantasizing about what could have been. Both of those are good ideas. They're both very valid. This movie does get fantastical for very brief periods of time at the very end <laughs> yeah. that a man can survive a tire iron at all and then the launching. So yes, that could be a fantasy that the movie puts out there. It could be that Eleanor is taking Zach to Florida and then the bit at the end with Tyler is this wishful thinking for both of them. But no, maybe the movie is saying that he wishes the guy back to life. Badly hurt still, with a big bandage on his head, but he will live. So I can't volunteer Chris open his beer because he's not drinking any. We're doing this around 2.30 in the afternoon on a Saturday. I've got water. Chris has... Well, you know me, I go hard, Ryan. So I've got a nice apple, cinnamon, turmeric, herbal tea going. Oh, wow. So classy. I thought about having a bottle of beer because this is very much a blue-collar type of movie. If we were really sticking to the underlying feel and tone of this movie, we would have just gone down to the back shed of somebody in the neighborhood and bought moonshine from them and just been sipping Mm -hmm. on that the whole time. That's what we should have done. Or have them give it to us. (laughs) <laughs> just act pathetic until they take pity on us and give us free booze. He does have a gun on him as well. And the guy does bring it up, but he feels a little bit anxious about that fact. 
One of my favorite characters, bar none, in this movie was that gasoline station slash convenience store owner, but that was pretty funny. I also questioned in that scene Tyler's grasp of reality himself a little bit because he grabs eight different things, including a sandwich, and presumably this takes place contemporaneously to its release, like 2019-ish, 2018-ish. So he puts this pile of stuff on the counter, and the guy's like, yeah, that's like 12 bucks. And he's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So much? All right, what about now? No, that's still six different things. It's like $5. What? Did he think he was living in 1952? What was going on I have $2. I have $2. What will that get me? Not very much. Those fish hooks and... Peanut butter. That's right. Of course. Peanut butter. So this is the Peanut Butter Falcon, or Huckleberry Finn and Backyard Wrestling. And it was released by Roadside Attractions in August 2019 for a low-budget indie movie starring the controversial Shia LaBeouf and a kid no one had heard of at all, Zach Gottsagen. It did very well, extremely well for a movie with a low budget and those issues. Did it really? I had not heard of this until you suggested we do it. A few people had talked about it in the fall because they had seen it more, maybe at festivals, but they had seen it by the time it came out in August of 2019. I didn't see it till it was on demand or Netflix or something, which is where it was when I watched it this time as well. I think it's also on the library service here in Canada. So you've got sure. multiple options to see this film. But I thought they were right. This is a sleeper hit. Very little wrestling in it. There's talk of it quite a bit, and there's some quote-unquote training for it, but it's not really a sports movie. We are not really jamming this into that category because there actually is a sport at the very end, or a sports entertainment, if you're Vince McMahon, at the very end. Yeah. But this is more than anything else just a darn good movie. Darn good movie? This is more than anything else just a damn good movie. Did you agree? Your first time, my second time. I think you were right the first time. It is a darn good movie because we all know Zach doesn't swear, right? And he's instructed by the saltwater redneck to say the meanest thing you can possibly think of. And the meanest thing you could think of was, you're not invited to my birthday party. Full disclosure, I had to hit the 10 seconds back button on Netflix and throw on the captions because I did not know what he said. Yeah, it was a little tough to understand. And it's a good line when you do know what he said, but I couldn't hear what he said. I guess it makes more sense if you say it was an indie movie, so presumably more limited release, not as much Mm -hmm. advertising, because it's not something I'd ever heard of. We've been talking about this for at least a couple months as far as when we would actually do it. And the first time you mentioned it to me, I thought you were talking about The Peanut Butter Solution, which is an entirely different movie, much older and way weirder. (laughs) I had no idea what you were talking about, so I had to look up what this movie was until I fully understood what we were going to do. And I think you're absolutely right in saying Huck Finn and wrestling, or backyard wrestling, because that's exactly what this movie feels like. It's essentially just a travelogue type of movie. It's two guys just traveling together. Granted, you get Eleanor into the picture later in the movie as well, but basically it's these two friends traveling together. And it reminds me a lot of that style of narrative. It also reminded me a lot of, oh, brother, where art thou? Mm. Now, granted, I understand that's like a modernized telling of the Odyssey, but I think the Odyssey is the same thing. It's a travel epic, and that's what this is. And it relies entirely on you believing the relationship between Shia LaBeouf and Zach Gottsagen? Gottsagen. Gottsagen. I thought possibly he was related to... Dustin Hoffman's in-laws, because his wife's name is Gottsagen. I think it's spelled differently, and I don't think that she is related, or they are related to this guy at all. I think this is his first, and I don't know if he's done subsequent roles. His first one. He got some things in the hopper. Oh, that's good. At the Oscars, the year after this, he and LaBeouf presented short subject Oscars, something like that. They both came out, and he wanted to be an actor, so I guess the idea was, let's make this movie, these two new coming filmmakers as well. So the writers, directors are new, and this actor's new, and he is really the star of this movie. He's in he pretty much every scene. But he wanted to be an actor, so let's make your arc be that you want to be a wrestler in the storyline. That makes a lot of sense. 
it relies on the relationship between those two, but it also relies on both of those performers actually portraying their characters. Do you think they sold it? I think they did, yeah, absolutely. I read a little bit about the making of this movie, and it seems like Shia and Zach are good friends in real life as well, which is why their relationship, I think, comes across pretty naturally on the screen. Right. Well, LaBeouf was at the Oscars that time, too, presenting with him, and it seems like he's coaxing him through a little bit because I'm sure the kid's nervous, and also he's not a great actor, exactly. They probably did yeah. a lot of takes in this movie, but I think you get that gist in that little bit at the Oscars, too, that they are friendly. Yeah, exactly. So I bought the relationship entirely. I'm not the biggest Shia LaBeouf fan, and I know he's kind of persona non grata a little bit because of the weird antics. He's a maniac, and he's probably insane, but this kid can... Well, not a kid now, but this guy can act. And we have to cut the guy a little bit of slack, because he might be a little bit out there, but as far as I'm aware, he doesn't have the horrific skeletons in the closet that a lot of people we're discovering in recent years do have, and you can be eccentric, you can be weird... And you don't have to love the guy, but we've talked in other movies about how me knowing certain things about certain actors just means I can't watch their performances anymore. It ruins them for me. You're a little bit more forgiving in terms of being able to enjoy performances by some people knowing things about their personal lives. Not always, but yeah, I'm better about that than most people are. In Shia's case, I'm not out there looking for his movies because i got to see it. And when I say abominations in their history... I'm not thinking about Indiana Jones 5 or 4. 4. Crystal Skull, because that is an abomination. He wasn't should, good in that movie. And Shia should be. It wasn't well written for his character. Yeah, he wasn't good in that movie, and he knows it. He's good in this. I think he portrays the character as the character is meant to be. A guy that is still young, but has trauma in his past and is living in a real shitty kind of state of being in a real depressed area of the country and... I said this last time we recorded about The Way Back, and I think I feel similarly about this. This is another example of movies where it does a good job of shorthanding elements of this person's backstory mm-hmm. in an effective way. Because Something we've seen many times over in many movies about why he's like this. But I think the scenes with John Bernthal, and Bernthal doesn't have any dialogue in this movie either. Exactly. But those are really well done. And how do we find out Bernthal died? If you blinked, you would not know why. Yeah. Tyler's at the wheel. His eyes start getting heavy, and they don't show an accident. But clearly what happened is because Mark, so that's Bernthal's character, was asleep in the passenger seat. Tyler fell asleep, car accident, and Mark's the one who died. And they were so close. Tyler looked up to him so much. He doesn't really ever need to say it because the flashbacks show it. And one of the moments in this movie that almost got me was when he puts his head on Zach's shoulder on the raft. It's almost like in that moment, Mark is with him again. I think so. And that's done entirely through flashback and entirely with no dialogue from either of them in the flashback scenes. Yeah, and like you said, you blink and you miss it because that scene in particular, I had to rewind it because I did blink and it was almost over. It's maybe 10 seconds long. It's not a long flashback and it just happens apropos of nothing almost, right? It's just a little bit of a non sequitur scene that's thrown in during a quiet moment on Zack and Tyler's journey. Because Tyler's remembering this specific moment, obviously, is what that is all about. Same with the fun at the bar when they're on a dock fishing, those kinds of things. Those flashes that we all have about great moments in our lives or sometimes bad moments in our lives. Yeah. It's just a memory we're seeing, really. And I think part of why that's effective is, A, because the movie doesn't call specific attention to it and it makes it feel more organic that way. It makes more sense because, like you said... These are memories that Tyler is experiencing because of the journey he's taking with Zach. And I'm sure it's just what you said. Mark was this kind of character to Tyler when they were younger. Right? He really looked up to Mark, and I'm sure Mark taught him all of these life skills that he is now trying to kind of impart on Zach. Right? So the roles have reversed a little bit, 
in undertaking this journey and sort of stepping into Mark's shoes so that Zack can become his Tyler, effectively, it makes sense that he would be experiencing these little memories and these little flashbacks, and it's a really effective way to explain what happened to this young man to make him this disillusioned character that he is. And rash to light somebody's stuff on fire just because you have an argument with them. They did beat him up. But he has to know when he lights their stuff on fire, they're coming for him. There were a few moments in this movie where I almost snickered a little bit because one was when he just gets beat up and like you said, he's rash and he's mad. But he douses all of the crab equipment with gasoline and torches it. He knows these people are in the shed 10 feet away. Mm -hmm. You would think he would throw the match and then get the hell out of there. But he kind of like stares at it, slowly saunters away, and then they come running out and he's like, oh right, they're going to kill me. And then he starts moving. Uh, Tyler, you gotta get the hell out of there. I just had a thought. Maybe he's suicidal there. Maybe he wants them to kill him. You think? He doesn't seem suicidal in the rest of the movie, but I'm just thinking this now, that why would he not run away? You're right. Well, you have to have a story. Well, they would know probably it was him, but they need to know it was him by seeing him do it. And then yeah. also him rushing away is why he doesn't notice Zach under a tarp in his boat, because if he knew he was there and he wasn't rushing, he'd probably make him get out of the boat and you have no movie. That's possible, because he is definitely in an emotional pit until he takes on Zack as a little bit of a protege for their mm-hmm. journey. Maybe that's what pulls him out of that particular level of despair. You mentioned Zack having broken out of the care home with the aid of his roommate Brewster, mm-hmm. who's not in this for very long, but he's pretty great when he mm-hmm. is. Incidentally, I also did enjoy the fact that Brewster helps Zack bend the bars... Like that Shanghai noon scene? Yeah, yeah. It works. Did they pee on the towel? Well, we didn't see that. Maybe they used water, but bends the bars, and then he's like, all right, Zach, you're on your own. He doesn't maybe just tell Zach, hey, by the way, bud, before you grease yourself up naked and slip through the bars. Throw your clothes out ahead of you? throw your clothes out ahead of you so you have something out there. No, he's just like out there and then running away in Mm -hmm. his tidy whities But he eventually makes his way to Tyler's boat and hides out under the tarps while that battle's going on between Tyler and the local crab guys. The movie makers here picked one of the most disgusting ways for Zack to out his presence to Tyler. You could have just as effectively had him maybe sneeze or something, Mm -hmm. but instead he just vomits into his own hand under the tar. I was eating while I was watching this movie, and that (laughs) happened. I was like, oh, no. Movies, modern movies, at least TV shows, think they have to have puke in almost every one of them. Seems like every movie's got puke. They get away from the crab boat, guys. Tyler effectively says, all right, Zach, I'm out of here. You're on your own. Zach's saying, hey, buddy, can I come with you kind of stuff. And we can be friends. We can be friends. By the way, Zach seems like the nicest guy in the world. I kind of want to be his friend mm-hmm. after watching this movie. But yeah, Tyler initially rebuffs all of his advances, hitchhikes his way out of there, and then has a change of heart and comes back and finds Zach, I guess, more or less where he left him, being bullied by like an eight-year-old kid. Because Zach can't swim, we find out. At this point, anyway. But jump off anyway. Yeah. And, of course, the kid's calling him all kinds of insulting names. Yeah. We haven't said, I guess, explicitly yet, but Zach has Down syndrome. Right. And more than one person in this movie, including one of the attendants in that old folks home, calls him the R-word. Yeah, that attendant reminded me of Ben Stiller's character from yeah. Happy Gilmore. But what I loved, and I shouldn't because... Oh, I did too. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, because <laughs> if you're an adult, you shouldn't do this. You should not. But <laughs> the nonchalant way in which Tyler just runs up to where Zach and the kid were... Casually turns around, punches the kid yep. in the face, and then dives <laughs> off and rescues Zach. The kid kind of deserved he it. He deserved it. That's why it's funny. That's why it's funny. But as an adult, you can't be punching kids in the face like that. But he was being a total dick to this poor disabled guy. That was a legit laugh out loud moment. I thought it was funny too. Are you going to say it? <laughs> Without you even saying it. 
Well, so many full marks to the writers and directors who've never made a movie before, just like their star, Tyler Nelson and Michael Schwartz. So first time they've written or directed a big screen film. And I also have to give them full credit that they didn't do the thing that Hollywood has done so often, which is give this kind of role. I mentioned Dustin Hoffman playing mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't actually have autism, playing an autistic character. Hoffman's wonderful in that film. And maybe you can't cast somebody... That, well, I guess you can't, and have the arc you do in that movie. And that was also 30-plus years ago. But now we're seeing a time where people aren't... Well, Scarlett Johansson's one who thinks, oh, I should be able to play wherever I want. Or anyway, they want to play all these kinds of roles. Actors do. But they're getting people who actually have the issue. So this guy actually has Down syndrome. Like I said before, I'm sure there are a lot of takes where he didn't say the line well enough. You could really understand what he's saying, and this and that. Happens in our podcast. They get cut out when I'm flum... Ironically, I just flubbed. I guess I can't cut that up. We had to laugh there. But anyway, so you're going to go with somebody who's not a professional and you may have to take what you can get. But kudos to them for going with somebody. And actually, you have a hard time casting. I don't know who you'd even cast who doesn't have Down syndrome because you can see it. This isn't like he's got disabled legs or Forrest Gump, for example. Yeah. And I do think that kind of thing is still okay to cast somebody who's not really that thing. The race thing is bigger, though. Scarlett Johansson, for example, wanting to play, was it a trans character? But she did play the character in, what was that? Ghost in the Shell, where she's supposed right. to be an Asian character. And she doesn't see why that's a bit of an issue. But anyway, kudos that they cast this non-actor, at least at the time, to play what he actually is, somebody with Down syndrome. I'm kind of with you on this. And it's funny, I was having a discussion about this with my wife, Allison, recently. An openly gay comic actor, and I'm forgetting his name right now recently announced that he was producing a new sitcom that involved all gay characters as the leads and was only going to cast gay or lesbian actors in the roles, Mm. which is fantastic. It's admirable. What we want to see is representation of whatever's being portrayed on screen that should be represented by that group, by and large. It's also better to play a gay person than a gay actor. Yes. And I think the same holds true for people with disabilities, regardless of what the disability might be. But if you're an actor, you don't just want to play yourself. That's not why you're an actor. So I can appreciate you want to play people of different circumstances or what have you. So I would never criticize Tom Hanks for playing Forrest Gump, for instance. You want to stretch your creative wings a little bit and play somebody whose life circumstances are different. But it is definitely a touchy thing and you have to be very sensitive about it and very careful because at the same time, you do want to also afford the correct and appropriate opportunities for people who are of that sort of life circumstance to portray whatever that thing might be. And I'm trying to be very vague about it because it can encapsulate anything. It can be race, it can be gender, it can be sexual preference, whatever. Mm-hmm. We want that to be accurately portrayed. And so people should be able to portray themselves. And but One I of the issues, though, I think that will come up from a studio, maybe they don't say this anymore because they yeah. know they get roasted if they do, but it's also true, or it was true. Maybe it's not as true as it was. Some of these movies wouldn't have been made at all if they didn't get either a star or somebody who's such a good actor, like a Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. in My Left Foot. The year after, Hoffman wins an Oscar for playing somebody who isn't himself, somebody with autism. Day-Lewis wins the Oscar for playing one of his more famous roles, and there's a lot of famous roles for that guy, in My Left Foot, playing Christy Brown. Could they get somebody who's actually in a wheelchair to be Christy Brown and only have control over one foot? I don't know. And the movie doesn't get made at all, probably, unless you get somebody who's a relative name. And Hoffman, the year before, was absolutely a big name. Plus, Hanks playing Forrest Gump. Maybe that movie doesn't get made for the budget it would have had to be and everything else that Zemeckis wanted, unless you cast one of the biggest stars in the business. I agree. And it's not a black and white issue, because there's so many considerations that go into it beyond just representation and beyond just an actor's preference to try to take on a number of different roles. 
there's also, like you said, the considerations of this might be a very worthy project, but we need some cachet behind it. And that lead character needs to be somebody people are going to recognize. Otherwise, it's not going to get made. Nobody's going to see it. And then maybe it's going to be talking about a very important issue that's never going to get out there. The Daniel Day-Lewis example is a good one. I think you can use things like Milk. If Sean Penn isn't the lead character in that, does anybody ever see that movie? That's a really good film. He's terrific in it, too. Exactly. Tropic Thunder did a number of things reasonably well, but they have Robert Downey Jr. lampooning the kind of thing you talked about with Scarlett Johansson, namely characters. That's why I think they got away with it even then. That movie is 13 years old. Would they be able to make it now? No. Probably not, but it would be more of a maybe than a no because he's mocking that kind of stuff. They show him... And what's supposed to be inside the actor studio, sounding like Russell Crowe and mocking <laughs> yeah. Russell Crowe and that type of mentality, not just Russell Crowe. And the idea that he would go so far as to tint his skin to play a black man is mocking the people that do that kind of thing. Yes, he actually does it. And then he does the stereotype with the voice and everything. I get why people had an issue with it then and even more so now. But that's why it happened. And I heard Jamie Foxx, for one, not that Jamie Foxx represents all black people, but he was okay with it. Mm-hmm. he's also friends with Downey and maybe Downey gets away with things because he's Robert Downey Jr. People like him so much. But my point is that I think that one's more gray area too because of why he's doing it and why Stiller and the guys wrote it that way. It's incredibly ballsy. If you're going to try to do something like that, Tropic Thunder did it about as well as you can probably try to do it thanks to the performance of Downey. But I also think about Ben Stiller's character in that movie as the action hero that tries to win an Oscar in the most inappropriate way possible. Mm-hmm. They're lampooning both sides of the type of coin we're sort of dancing around here, right? And that is actors taking on roles that they really shouldn't because, A, they're not appropriately cast for it or they're not capable of handling it sensitively. Downey is the inappropriate group there and Stiller is the actor that, okay, maybe it is going to be okay for you to take on a role of this type. But you got to be sensitive about it and you got to be up to the task and his character in Tropic Thunder is not. So... It's weird to think about that movie, Tropic Thunder, being screwball comedy, essentially, and it tackled two issues that are, I think Hollywood is trying to come to grips with now, 13 years later. Also is... drug abuse with Jack Black. That's right, yeah. And the other reason why I think maybe Downey, the filmmakers, would ever get away with it is because, what's his name again? Brandon T. Jackson, I believe, is always pushing back against the Downey character for what he's doing. Are we okay? No, we're not. Oh, yes. <laughs> So that may be why it works, too. So let's get back to the Peanut Butter Falcon. I'll do the numbers on this film. They're quite impressive. Very impressive. The Rotten Tomatoes critics and audiences on that site love this movie. 95% of critics and 96% of audiences. 7.5 out of 10 was the average for critics on the strength of 220 reviews. Man, those are some of the best numbers I will probably ever report for a podcast we do. And it was 100th at the 2019 U.S. box office, Fighting With My Family, our last wrestling movie, which we did earlier this year, was 91st. And I like that one a lot, too, also because of the heart. Both of these movies and last week's The Way Back, all of them are a big thumb up for me because of so much heart. But we haven't even talked about another big reason why this movie has heart. And it's one of her more underrated roles, I would say, at this point. Dakota Johnson. There's some turns in this movie that I don't love they did with her, including at the very end that she's going to Florida. If it's real that Tyler survived and they're all going to Florida, she's chucking whatever life she has to go off with them. It's one thing to help out Zach, and it's very important she has a phone call from the people at the rest home that say Zach has to go somewhere else, and it sounds like it's basically prison for him. And he shouldn't be at a rest home in the first place, so you can understand their logic on why, but she wants to help him out because she really likes him. She always has. She starts to fall for Tyler a little bit. The two actors make it work basically, but I didn't fully believe it. And they both have a certain kind of sexuality. Although this movie isn't a scorable movie, despite especially her looks and his rugged sexuality as well. And I don't know if I totally believe their sexual chemistry. Their chemistry as people is becoming friends in this film. Fine. But the romance that may be burgeoning, I don't know if I really buy that. 
But that does lead me into the nutshell because she does leave for days, A, and then it seems like she's going off to do something else for a living with them. So in a nutshell, on the Peanut Butter Falcon, how many old people died alone in that rest home while Eleanor was off gallivanting with Zack and Tyler? She says, I'm the last thing they see. Well, you're off for days with these two guys and these people aren't with you. Somebody had to die alone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There are some elements of this movie that beyond the fantastical at the end stretch credulity a little bit and the romance between Tyler and Eleanor is one that I was like yeah I don't know about that I can definitely get behind them being into each other okay you're kind of cool and we both care a lot about Zach so we've got that tie Mm -hmm. together already but to believe that within the space of whatever it's been two days ish Mm -hmm. that they've been traveling together all of a sudden they're romantically involved to the extent of the handhold at the end, which is movie symbolism for, oh yeah, we're a couple now and we're going to look after Zach. That might be a bridge too far, maybe. Mm. I would even accept more readily that Eleanor is bailing on her job because of what you just said with respect to Zach. She cares so much about Zach, has looked after him for years now, that she's willing to quit her job to get him into a situation that is not going to be, like you said, effectively prison because we find out that where he's being forced to move to because of his desire to escape all the time is where they send prostitutes and drug addicts I think is the way she Mm. puts it but he can't stay at a rest home the rest of his life either so and that's the other interesting thing about this movie is it also feels like a little bit of a condemnation of the social safety net at least in the US because it spends a lot of time repeatedly coming back to the point of yes Zach lives in a rest home It seems like it's a state-sponsored rest home of some kind, intended for senior citizens and hospice care, it looks like. People on end-of-day watch kind of stuff. And Zach's put there because he has nobody else. He needs care, and there's nobody to look after him, and that was the only facility in the state with a bed for him. He's got no money, and neither does Tyler. Tyler needs help, too. (laughs) Yeah. And apparently, after their stuff gets burned, so do Duncan and Ratboy. Yeah. Hawks says, John Hawks is Duncan, when you burned our stuff... That cleaned us out. We're ruined for the season. So what he does is awful. But if you can't get that basic logic behind wanting revenge, when you say that to somebody that you just ruined me, then I don't think you're being fair to the guy. He takes it too far, but he's got a reason to be this angry. So he needs help too. That is true. And I do feel like the movie is trying to put across the point that we need to pay closer attention to those members of our society in need who aren't necessarily just the elderly, but other people with differing needs. And we need to have a place that is more conducive to their needs. But you're right about the two crab fishermen that Tyler effectively ruins. And they even say to him at one point, they catch him, you're not the only one struggling here, right? And I've already said, I like this movie a lot, but that particular sub thread I feel like they could have massaged that a little bit better and maybe fine-tuned it because a few things didn't make a ton of sense. Like the whole journey that Tyler takes with Zach, we don't have an exact chronology, but it's maybe four days in totality, I think, two with Eleanor, two prior, maybe five. And so the movie kicks off effectively with Tyler burning the crab equipment. And then by the time we're at the wrestling match at the end, he's been wanged with the tire iron. Maybe four days have passed. So he's caught... A day or two later, and by the way, these fishermen, they've got to be next level trackers. Zach and Tyler are camping out in the dark in the wilderness backcountry of North or South Carolina. They find them multiple times. Yeah, and they just. Although there's a phone call when they're wrestling, that's why they get there. The wrestling, I have. The guy outs them, that big black guy outs them, meaning Zach and Tyler, well, Tyler especially. Less of an issue with the wrestling match at the end. More of an issue when Zach and Tyler were camping out. In the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. Eleanor finds them in the middle of nowhere, though, too. (laughs) It's true. They're just, like, broadcasting their location on the net or something the whole time. 
maybe Tyler's got a cell phone that we don't know about that's just constantly pinging his location to <laughs> Facebook or whatever. So they kept finding them in unbelievable ways. The first time they find Tyler, they say, okay, listen, we got to hurt you because you burned our stuff and you got to pay the price and then you'll pay us back. And to his credit, he doesn't want to be maimed, but Tyler keeps saying, whenever Eleanor asks him, what's next for you? What are you going to do with your life? He says, well, I'm going to go to Jupiter. I'm going to set up a fishing charter business down there and I'm going to pay them back the money I owe them. So he wants to pay the debt back. And these fishermen who know this guy has literally got zero things except the bag on his back, they're after him nonstop for four days because he owes them $12,000. Where do you think he's got this money? You want the money. You should want the money. How about giving him at least a few days to try to make a few bucks to give you before you start coming after him with a tire iron? It feels like they're acting against their own best interests at that point. They're acting like the mob. They want the money, but they also want revenge. And revenge is fine. You need a dramatic There's the conflict, because why else would Tyler be running for so long with Zach unless he's being chased by people that want to hurt him? And this is what it boils down to for me at the end of it all is I have all these questions about the motivations of the crab guys and how they manage to do some of the things they do and why they do the things they do. And it all culminates with him hitting Tyler with a tire iron at the end of the movie. And in fairness, right at the beginning of the movie, he does say, I'm going to hit you over the head with a tire iron. So he follows through on this promise. But do we need any of that, right? Because Tyler's got no life, nothing. And he says, listen, I want to go to Jupiter. I know there's this giant estuary there. It's great fishing. I want to get a boat. I want to open up a business there. That's all you need. Because the whole heart of this movie is the journey and the relationship between Zach and Tyler and then to a lesser extent, maybe Eleanor in that group as well. And their travels together and then ultimately meeting the saltwater ragnack and that wrestling match at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that all still works pretty well without any of the crab fisherman subplot maybe they put it in there because they felt they needed more conflict for shia to work with or they needed to pad the runtime or something but it was for conflict i don't know if it really added a lot to the movie ultimately luckily you cast a good actor like john hawks to play this character we've covered him already this year because he's ticky and hardball pretty much pulled <laughs> opposite exactly. this kind of character where he's just a gambler and not a loser exactly but no threat with him at all he's just keanu's friend in that film he is very good, though. Well, this. speaking of sports films that people will be in or could be in or have been in, LaBeef. These are the best reviews he's ever had, by the way. I looked on Rotten Tomatoes. This is his number one movie. But with those numbers, I reported, no wonder. But he was also in The Greatest Game Ever Played, which is about golf. Mm-hmm. And he was in Borg vs. McEnroe. He's John McEnroe. So we could cover this guy three times in total. We'll probably do one of those movies in the next year or so. We'll see. But also John Bernthal, who plays the brother, is in Grudge Match. You want to do that this year. We'll do that at some point anyway. We already did him this year in Ford versus Ferrari. We thought he was quite good in that small role as Lee Iacocca. That's right. And he was in Fury, the Brad Pitt runs tank a tank movie. movie. Yeah, the tank movie. Wish I LaBeef. So maybe that's why he did this cameo with no dialogue. And it's so effective. Most people, and he's not like a huge name, but he's a relatively big name. It's pretty big. Most yeah. people would say no to that kind of deal, but maybe he's friends with LaBeef. I, keep, I like to call him that because, of course, True Grit. <laughs> I'm assuming that Matt Damon's character's spelling was similar to Shia LaBeouf's actual last name, so I always like to call him LaBeef. And then Jake the Snake Roberts, who's not playing himself, but he's playing this guy named Sam, Mick Foley, who's running that backyard wrestling show. They were the two main stars of Beyond the Mat, which we covered a couple of years ago, I guess it was. Of course, themselves in that, Jake the Snake and his drug problems and his family troubles and everything else he was going through then, finally recovered. I think he's stayed clean for years now. Yeah. And the McFoley, of course, we talked about him so much in that movie. One of my favorite wrestlers ever and a good dude and still on the scene and did stand-up comedy, wrote books, all that stuff. So we've seen or will see a lot of these people again. We probably won't see Dakota Johnson again. And I don't know about you, but I did see the Fifty Shades films. Did not, no. They're not sporty, of course. But but she does have a very good role in a small one in The Social Network. Oh. 
she's the one that Sean Parker sleeps with. And that's how he finds out about Facebook in the first place because it's just starting to be a thing. And so she's in the Fifty Shades films and Shia LaBeouf was in those two Nymphomaniac movies. Yeah, he was. So they've both been in hardcore sex movies. And I said a few minutes ago, I don't really think they have tremendous sexual chemistry. I think they could. If this movie was more about that, they probably could have sold that quite well. And she's so warm and friendly and he's a likable guy in this. But it's just interesting that they both have played. Well, those movies weren't all that sexy maybe, but they've been in these sexual kinds of films. And in this wholesome film, it's almost like, well, we could get to that point later on. <laughs> so if those two characters from those movies met... Get Zach out of there and can I watch? <laughs> so you're effectively writing some sort of fanfic fanfic for the Peanut Butter Falcon at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no more wholesomeness. <laughs> the hardcore Peanut Butter Falcon. Mm. But the reason we're covering, of course, is the wrestling at the end and Thomas Hayden Church doesn't have a ton of screen time, but he does a lot with it. Yeah. I like when they first find him. He says his name is Clint. Again, I had to rewind him. What did he say? Clint? Oh, Mitch? What was that? Oh, Clint. <laughs> Mitch. <laughs> I didn't know what he said. I heard it. And that's pretty much all I got out of that. So he's done a ton of movies. I love actually a small cameo he has in Cheers when we find out that Eddie LeBeck, so Carla's husband, died. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's him. I think it's Thomas Hayden Church who comes in and tells them a story about what happened, how Eddie saved him from some Zamboni. So anyway, he's got this really important role in this movie, though, as the saltwater redneck. And I like how he doesn't tell them to leave, but he's just not playing this character at all. He's just being himself. And it seems like his life is pretty dull and everything else. But then gets into character, gets makeup on, drives and finds them. And from that point on, he's both Clint and the saltwater redneck, probably more Clint still. But he's also had his life picked up by these people. Tyler was going nowhere until Zach came along. Mm -hmm. Dakota Johnson's character was fine. But Clint wasn't. So these people help rejuvenate him. I bet he's going to now do that back wrestling stuff again. And I don't know that he was doing it before. He knew about it, obviously. He's got to deal with the whole thing with Sam being dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's so weird. I wanted to know more about their relationship between Sam and the saltwater redneck Clint because initially they seem like buddies. Sam is there helping give Zach some backyard wrestling pointers. But then Sam does the wrong thing and makes it real. And then basically turns around to Thomas Hayden Church and says, go fuck yourself, don't tell me what to do, right? I'm like, where did this anger come from? I don't understand. Are you guys friends? Maybe Jake the Snake just went off script. But no, it was actually in the script, obviously. Yeah. But then again, it reminds you all over again of the fact that Zach shouldn't be in the ring at all like this. He has had no training, no proper training, other than yeah. what Tyler gave him a little bit on the road. But Tyler doesn't know much about wrestling, I don't think. He knows a little bit. And he's certainly enthusiastic, and he helps make that costume. Zach shouldn't be in there in the first place, because he could have got hurt worse than he actually was. But it is nicely set up that he can do anything close to the move that Clint told him was impossible. But we know that Zach is strong because of what had happened earlier when he pulls Tyler up after the whole incident in the water when he nearly gets run over by that big boat. I'm sure, by the way, that huge shrimp boat is also supposed to be a metaphor for what's really going on, that that thing is steamrolling people like Tyler and Duncan. Oh, that makes sense. So anyway, when Zach pulls Tyler up, Tyler comments later on about how strong you are when you did that to me. So we know he's got that kind of ability, but he still shouldn't be in the wrestling ring. And Clint should have known better than that, too. Although Sam wasn't supposed to do anything as he did. But that's Sam for you. That's Jake the Snake for you. (laughs) Yeah, it was an interesting way to wrap the movie. And you're right with respect to the shrimp boat. I hadn't thought about it that way. It makes a lot of sense. It was an effective scene when it was happening for a number of reasons because they're swimming across the river. It's already been established that Zach can't swim. He's kind of scared of water. Actually, when that happened, it kind of goes unremarked upon in the moment, although Tyler references it later when he's trying to talk to Zach about wrestling. But... Zach just reaches down and almost nonchalantly bodily lifts Tyler up. This guy's bloody strong. 
But I did find it interesting that the shrimp boat made no perceivable efforts to slow down. All they would do is honk the horn at these two guys who are clearly just swimming across the river. You're just going to run them over while honking? All right, fair enough. But it was well shot. That's a movie staple, too. Usually it's a car or a bus. The near miss, right? Yeah. Well, not even so much the near miss. They'll run somebody over, and they're not slowing down at any point. It's not even a matter of, I've done this. One time when I lived in Hamilton, I was driving home downtown. Somebody just streaked in front of me. Yeah. It was nighttime, so I didn't really see him coming. I think people were chasing him is why he did it. I don't think he was drunk or a maniac or anything. I think he was just desperate for his life. But I did the thing where you start to hit the brakes probably a second too late. I did try to brake. But in movies so often, they portray it that that speeding bus, like in the Final Destination movies or that kind of thing, or in Mean Girls, they're not even trying to stop. <laughs> even if you've already hit that person, don't you start hitting the brakes? And this boat's the same. You're right. They could have veered the boat as well. But maybe the idea is he's inconsequential and we can't lose the catch we're getting right now. Well, they don't even have the nets in the water at that point. The nets oh, are okay. pulled up, so they aren't actively trawling. So that must be one hell of a metaphor, then. Yeah, I guess. By the time we get to the end of the movie and the saltwater redneck has brought them to the backyard wrestling after barely any instruction to Zach whatsoever, you're absolutely right. He should not be in the ring. I was a little bit confused about what the messaging of that was intended to be by the movie, because you have this character in Zach who's spent the entire movie just desperately trying to escape from the care home and then actually does escape to try to live out his wrestling dream based solely on having watched one VCR tape of old school wrestling that... Over and over yeah. and over that day, even. And I thought Bruce Dern did a great job of just being friendly because they're good friends. He like, does like him. Yeah. He likes him a lot, but he's basically going, come on, man, mm -hmm. no more. Something else, anything else. Yeah, so we get Zach both living out his dream and then realizing that, you know... Reality, Don't be your heroes. Don't meet your heroes, and reality doesn't always live up to fantasy, right? So mm -hmm. what you imagine something to be, the reality is not necessarily going to match up to it. And of course, the reasons for that in Zach's case are myriad and varied because of his life circumstances. But it's a complicated ending to the movie when you break it down internally. One of my favorite lines in this movie, I think it was Mick Foley who said it, when they show up to the backyard wrestling and Thomas Hayden Church goes up to him and says, listen, I need to substitute in a guy, and he sort of points over. And Mick Foley looks over and goes, that guy? I don't know, he's got more of like a swimmer's build. No, 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 not him, the little guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there are two nice touches, actually, leading into the match and then just before it. Did you notice that Zach has Tyler's hat on when they're driving to the wrestling match? Everyone's having a good time in the car. Jake oh, the Snake is not selling that he's having fun at all, maybe because he's already thinking, I'm going to beat up this kid and show him a thing or two. But they're all having a good time as they're driving along, and Zach has the hat on. I think it's backwards as well. And I guess it's supposed to be the same hat that Mark wears in the flashbacks. It looks similar enough, but it's so beat up and it's so pink. I think the idea is that it's been bleached, though, by the sun of many years of wearing it since yeah. Mark died. The other nice touch is that when... Zach comes out in his Peanut Butter Falcon outfit, which is, of course, a silly name. Falcon's actually a pretty cool name for a wrestler, but Peanut Butter Falcon, which he gets from having peanut butter in his face earlier in the film, one of the nights Zach and Tyler are out together by the water. But the sparse crab doesn't react, and then Tyler amps them up until they're all reacting, and Zach's getting the handshakes from everybody, which might be a bit of a fantasy, too. If they didn't care enough about this kid, just because this other guy they don't know says, yeah, let's go, everybody, they actually cared enough to bother doing that. But it is pretty cool that Zach got that reaction, because yeah. that alone probably would have made him feel like a real wrestler. The pinnacle of touching moments in the movie was when he's finally getting the reaction from the crowd because you could get the sense that it's going to go downhill from there for him. But I thought there'd be more of a rationale for the peanut butter than there proved to be. We've already talked about the convenience store scene where Tyler actually ends up just buying basically peanut butter and fishing hooks because he has no money for anything else. So we get the jar of peanut butter, which is basically going to be their only... They do get fish, though. 
Yes. And Bare hands fish. We end up with the peanut butter traveling with them. And on the raft, eventually, once Eleanor has joined the two guys, Eleanor and Tyler want to have it out a little bit. And they I laughed want... at this one, too. It was good-natured, and it was a good scene. When Eleanor says, dunk your head again, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tyler's like, all right, Sam, how long can you hold your breath? We're doing some training. Stick your head in the water. They start having an argument, and he pops mm-hmm. the head back up. And Zach asks, was that enough? Wasn't good enough. Zach, do it again. Okay. And, and that's when he gets the fish as well. He comes up. It wasn't even a small fish. It was like a good two foot mm-hmm. long. I don't know if it was a salmon or what you catch there. Shows how strong he is then too, because those things are so slippery that even if you timed it perfectly to catch a fish in your hands, to hold on to that thing, way to go. And then they're camped out at the beach and they've cooked the fish over an open fire. And Tyler says, okay, I can do it a couple of different ways. You know, here's option one, here's option two. And option three is the fish with peanut butter on it. And Zach's like, yeah, peanut butter on the fish. I think that was after the pump-up scene on the beach where Zach and Tyler have camped out. Montage! Yeah. Teach him how to shoot a gun as well, which also plays into the storyline, the plot. Well, I'm thinking specifically of the birth of the peanut butter Right, which is before Eleanor's there, though. So the fish scene came later. The fish scene came later. It also involved the peanut butter on the face stuff as quasi-war painty kind of thing. But I don't really understand why peanut butter became so totemic to Zach, ultimately, because it's not like earlier in the movie could we even get a scene where zach's eating dinner at the rest home and if it's somebody at that point had said sorry zach no peanut butter today or something and he was like oh man i love peanut butter okay then maybe he's got a connection to it but it was just a thing that tyler bought and that eventually evolved into his persona for the wrestling match. i think it's just because maybe their writers and directors nelson and schwartz thought it sounded good maybe and maybe in a way it's good it didn't have some payoff from before payoffs like in the way back there's a lot of great ones in that movie and there's some good ones in this too but maybe it's good that it just comes out of nowhere because that's the only food they have. If it had been maybe, yeah. jelly, it would have been the Jelly Falcon. <laughs> that was a good sounding name, actually. I kind of like that. <laughs> the Jelly Falcon. You know, if you were like a bigger guy and had more bulk on you and you called yourself the Jelly Falcon, that'd be pretty good. So I could do that then. Although <laughs> Zach's not exactly spelt. Well, the depiction of the sport, there's almost no wrestling in it. And Jake the Snake is so broken down that him doing much of anything is hard to believe. And... He can't, I don't think, in reality or in this movie sense. Although it was cool to see him do the short arm clothesline, which he does do to Zack. Jake the Snake, he was never the biggest or the strongest or most athletic Mm -hmm. guy in the wrestling world. Even in his prime, yeah. Right. Of course, he's much older and he's not in as good a shape, nearly. But you see him next to Thomas Hayden Church, Shia, and then He's monstrous. He's monstrous, right? So you get an appreciation. When you know that about Jake the Snake anyway, you get a real appreciation of how big these guys are. If Foley's 6'2 or 3 or 4, something like that. And he looks Jake the Snake's, I think, 6'5". Yeah. Well, Foley, maybe he's lost a little bit of inches on his height because of the various (laughs) injuries he's had. compression. Hulk Hogan is apparently shorter than he used to be because of some surgeries. I don't know if Foley's had back surgery. But anyway, yeah, Jake does look towering compared to these guys. And we do see some actual wrestling before the Sam-Zack match, and those guys are probably the most wrestling in this whole film. But it's not really a wrestling movie. It's obviously just a little souffle at the end of the souffle. <laughs> souffle. A little dessert. A dessert, I should say. An amuse-bouche. Which uh, a souffle is dessert, isn't it? But it's at the, the end of this... It's at the end of this road movie, effectively. This Huck Finn story. We've already talked about, we think this movie absolutely nailed the portrayal of the over-the-turnbuckle toss of mm-hmm. Jake the Snape by Zack. You could not do it any better than this movie does because it's just, mwah. If anybody were to ever watch WrestleMania and see somebody get thrown out of the ring, it looks exactly like Jake <laughs> being thrown by Zack. Yeah, he's clearly on cables because, like we say, he goes a long way. <laughs> I don't want to rag on an admittedly low-budget movie, but you didn't need this shot. Once you had Zack lift Jake the Snake up, he could have just dropped him effectively. It would have been well, as done the best portrayed in the saltwater redneck tapes. 
Yes. He didn't do anything extraordinary. He admits that he couldn't do the movie, says it's impossible. So, okay, let's have Zach do it, but the way that it was portrayed in the tapes. Saltwater Redneck didn't throw the guy 20 feet away out of the ring. It was just out of the ring, maybe, or just straight down. Yeah, Yeah, and the way the movie shoots it, there's not even like an arc. to. He's the still throw. going. Shot out of a cannon, just in a flat line. <laughs> he's Shoot. gaining. He's gaining speed. He's not coming down. He's gaining <laughs> momentum and height. He's entering orbit, people. <laughs> And as far as the sexuality, we already said that this movie's not really about that, but it is a very sweet movie. Good date movie it would have been back in those days in the theater. Yeah, it's and very heartfelt. Certainly be a good date movie on streaming now. I'd give it an 8 out of 10. Could even go higher, I guess, because this is one of the better acted movies and sweetest movies we've ever had. And as I said, I almost broke down in that little scene on the raft. And I don't think it's because of dialogue. It's just that moment where Tyler, and I think it's from behind as well. I love backting. Back acting, I like to call backting. And that's what they're doing in that moment. And you know why? Because he's remembering Mark. Ironically, you hate Bacne, but love Bacting. Well, we all hate Bacne, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree with you. And I think eight's a very fair score because what the core of this movie is, I think pretty much hits out of the park. It's a bit of a home run, that whole Shia, Zach, and Dakota Johnson relationship works pretty much entirely. Now, we've already touched on the elements of Eleanor's arc that maybe are a little unbelievable, but largely it works. She sells it well. She's she given a lot of credit for being a great actress. I think she's as good as her mother ever was. Melanie Griffith was good in some movies, but I think she's been as good or better in a lot of things she's done. Yeah, she, The Fifty Shades movies are not well written or well directed. Those two actors have been good in other things. They're not very good in those, but they've been good in other things. I've never seen Fifty Shades. I've seen Jamie Dornan in other things and Dakota Johnson in a few other things, but I think she was very good in this. I don't know if this exists. I don't know if the directors and writers have given interviews about what the ending of this movie is meant to be. But I really would be interested to know whether, in their minds anyway, it does very much feel like the kind of ending of the movie where you could reasonably argue it means like two, three, four different things. I think that's true. But you posited two good ones. But they couldn't have killed Tyler off, though. I suppose it could be later shooting with that to add him in the back of that car. Because it's set up for, what, maybe ten seconds. It's just the two of them. It's just Dakota Johnson and Zach Gottsagen. And it's only after maybe that 10 seconds or so has passed that Zach says something to the back seat and you realize, oh, Tyler's laying down in the back seat. Yeah. And it makes sense why he'd be laying down. So you have your shot. That's <laughs> he's kind of slow reveal. a grievous head yes. injury. He probably shouldn't be at the hospital yet. The more I think about it, the more I think he died because of Dakota Johnson's reaction after speaking to the doctor and she breaks down weeping. And then the rest of it is Zach's fantasy. It cuts from him staring at the candles on his birthday cupcake to the car so either it's an internal fantasy or this movie's gone full fantastical and he's just made a birthday wish and Zach some, or Tyler rather has somehow pulled through. Mm. But it would be interesting anyway to know what the directors internally, what do they believe the ending was? Right, right yeah. Nicely open-ended. We've seen two yeah. really good movies in two consecutive weeks. The Way Back was earlier this month and now here on, well, a month before Christmas when we post this, November 25th, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Like we said, an eight for, I would say, both those movies and we could have even gone higher than that unquestionably the way back and peanut butter falcon are two of the more affecting and emotional movies we've watched i think in the entirety of the run of this podcast Mm -hmm. yeah you said the way back touched you and it did me too and this one certainly did as well well in two weeks we'll tackle yet another baseball movie and this one is a lot older than peanut butter falcon which is what two and a half years old in fact the movie is five years older than chris and i was only two when it came out it's the 1976 version of the bad news bears i don't think there'll be very much emotion in this one from us (laughs) or near crying but there'll be a lot of sexiness, a lot of scoreability. A lot of swearing, though, too. Yeah, well, kids, I hope not, actually. <laughs> I'll probably tell you right now that the score factor should be no, because it's a movie about kids and Walter Matthau. Let me ask you this. We know the Bad News Bears centers around a kid's Sandlot team, essentially. Mm-hmm. 
on the over-under, would there be more kids punched in the face in Bad News Bears than there were in Peanut Butter Falcon or less? I'm going to say even. Be one <laughs> in this movie. One in that movie, one in this movie. Yep. No money for anybody. All right. Fair enough. But hopefully it's a kid punching a kid. Although that scene in this movie, I agree, was funny. I definitely so laughed at it too. Okay, so we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. Of course, email is ScoringAtThatMovies at gmail.com. All of our episodes, all 91 of them are available wherever you got this one in various places. Look for us wherever you get podcasts, or as Bev likes to say, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Although, this is free. You don't have to pay anything for it. <laughs> Much like the moonshine we hand out yes. all the time, this is free. Just take it. Get your gun out of here, please. So, take your easy, Zach. Your raw power is truly frightening. So, if you don't take your easy... You just might kill somebody, including Jake the Snake Roberts.